0: Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, Zell Anderson, Licensed Professional Counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hello everyone. So today is going to be part two of four episodes of me kind of going through Dr. Joy DeGry's post-traumatic slave syndrome book. And um, today I'm going to be sharing some of my insights that I gained from the third chapter of the book, which is titled Crimes Against Humanity, just to kind of continue to provide some context of what I've been learning here. Um, So if you haven't caught part one, uh, be sure to um, go back and check that out. It's always interesting how this author brings in a lot of context. So... Here's a quote. Studying history in American schools, we learn about the excesses of the Roman Empire, the viciousness of Stalin's Soviet Union, and the brutality of the Nazis. We learn about the barbarity of the Mongols and the cruelty of the Huns. You can easily add to this list the Japanese during World War II, the Viet Cong, and the Hutu of Rwanda. We've had Milo Sivek's Serbia, uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, the Taliban, Osama bin Laden, and ISIS, to name but a few. Certainly all of these listed above are responsible for their fair share of atrocities, but missing from this list is one society that is responsible for some of the most gruesome crimes against humanity in history, the United States of America, while the powers that be in America are happy to talk about others' crimes, they seem reluctant to confront their own. With respect to the genocide of Native Americans and the enslavement and later oppression of those of African descent, the history we learn in this land has been sanitized. End quote. And I won't say much on that one other than. As the reader, it reminds me of how much was lacking in um, these things being covered when I was going through school. But it also sheds a light on the importance, because um, it's very true, we look at other atrocities that have happened in other places, but we don't give the same sensitivity to um, what has happened in our own country and the consequences that still exist today. Uh, The author goes and talks a little bit more about the transatlantic slave trade, uh, also known as the Middle Passage, where basically this, um, you know, the the trauma as we're talking about post-traumatic slave syndrome is rooted in, right? Um, And so one quote here, it has been estimated that the millions of Africans who died en route exceeded the number of Jews killed in the Holocaust of the 1930s and 40s. Yet few of us are even aware that this part of African American history exists, end quote. And a a thing that stuck out to me is in school we learn about, okay, well, people captured Africans, put them on these ships, sent them across the, the ocean we don't always get a lot of numbers and specifics about what happened. And so here's a quote. Most scholars agree that nearly as many Africans died crossing the Middle Passage as reached the end of the voyage. If this is true, then it is likely that between 10 and 15 million died on the voyage. And this does not account for the millions of Africans estimated to have died fighting against their would-be captors, and who never made it to the slave ships the author goes on to say in some cases when there was an acute outbreak of disease like smallpox or dysentery ships were abandoned at sea with their human cargo chained helplessly below destined to suffer a slow merciless death end quote I definitely didn't get this context when I was in school. This was the first time that I ever stopped to think about what it must have been like in Africa with these people trying to capture Africans to put them on the slave ships, right? What that must have been like. The fact that half of those put on the slave ships never made it to um, the, you know, North and South America alive. I just found it interesting that it was framed that way, because I guess I've never in my life given much consideration to the terror and the chaos that must have been going on to families and communities being ripped apart from this. Obviously, that second part of the quote with if there was like an outbreak of a disease on the ship, it was more so like, the ship would be abandoned. They just counted it as a loss of cargo. We can replace that, right? But these are human beings that are left in the middle of the ocean to starve to death, chained in the bottom of a ship. That reading that was... I don't even have words for that. So continuing on with this theme of crimes against humanity, we know about forced labor, we know about unsuitable living conditions, we know about cruel slave owners and things like that. Another new thing that came to light as I read through this was the science experiments that were done on black people during the hundreds of years of this institution. One example, I'll give a quote, this physician built a makeshift hospital in his backyard where he conducted surgical experiments on countless unanesthetized African women. He reasoned that these women were able to bear great pain because their race made them more durable and thus they were well suited for painful medical experimentation. End quote. The thing that stands out to me is that while all along the the rationale is that slaves are not, they're subhuman, thus not equal, however, you can do science experiments that will benefit white humanity on these slaves. So they're human enough to be done experiments on, but they're not human enough to have rights and liberties. The specifically cruel part is without anesthesia. Um, And it's the myth that black women were somehow more durable. That's present today. I mean, there are numerous studies that show that uh, a black woman and a white woman in the same hospital complaining of the same symptoms receive markedly different care. There's the assumption that black people have a higher tolerance for pain. And so it's just upsetting that these things are deeply ingrained in this nation. Uh, So there's a section titled the peonage of sharecropping. And it kind of talks about how once the slaves were freed, how a industry of sharecropping became the norm for those who didn't really they didn't have any generational wealth or anything to fall back on. And so I'm going to start with a quote here. After the war, the federal government was called upon by northerners to confiscate the lands of plantation owners who fought against the north and redistribute it among ex-slaves. The government refused, leaving almost all the freed blacks desperately poor. In order to free themselves and their families many of them agreed to return to work the land of their former masters in return for a share of the crops they raised the remaining shares would be used to pay rent and buy supplies unfortunately what frequently resulted was peonage the unlawful pushing of blacks back into slavery through debt servitude these families having no money would buy the seed, tools, mules, and supplies they needed from local merchants on credit. Some merchants would then charge exorbitantly high interest rates, which made it impossible for families to pay off their debts. Other merchants would take advantage of the local sharecropper's illiteracy and simply create false billing statements. Either way, at the end of the season, when the accounts were settled, the black family would, would inevitably find that they still owed money and would then be forced to remain on the farm to work in order to clear the debt. And so black people were trying to create a life for themselves following slavery, but with all of the Dynamic stacked against them, it was an impossible system. This kind of continues on uh, during this time period following slavery with something called the convict lease system. I'm going to start a quote here. Southern plantation owners once more found that they were without che- a cheap source of labor. At the time, southern states had their own dilemma. What to do with free blacks who had committed crimes building and maintaining prisons was expensive and states coffers were all but empty the solution rather than imprison those convicted of crimes was to lease them to plantation owners as well as proprietors of other businesses for the duration of their sentence in this way everyone won Businessmen got cheap labor and states got paid. And then uh, she goes on to say that some authorities have estimated that as many as a quarter of all black lease convicts throughout the South died while under lease. So basically what's happening here is the blacks were being convicted of crimes, um, no matter how minor in nature and basically they were, they basically had to work for free, one, avoiding the state having to pay to house them and take care of them because they didn't have a prison system, but businesses profited off of this cheap labor, and there was no protections of how hard you could work someone, so like that last um, statistic said, a quarter of these um, lease convicts died because they were basically worked to death. And here's the kicker here's a quote. Often, false criminal charges were trumped up as a means of legally securing large numbers of free or cheap human laborers. Looking at a white woman could get you arrested for sexual assault. Walking on the wrong side of the street might equate to disturbing the peace. Not only were many blacks falsely arrested, They were convicted at a much higher rate and received much harsher sentences than their white counterparts. It seems that many in the South were not quite ready to give up on slavery. So you can see here how complex this road to freedom was for blacks living in the South. The sharecropper system basically only benefited the plantation owners um, and indebted the black people who worked on these um, sections of land, thus keeping them stuck and not able to have any financial traction. But then with the convict lease system, black people were rented out and worked to death as a casualty of the capitalist system that was currently going in the South based on cheap labor. And then uh, later on, I had shared that there were no protections, such as a fair trial and things like that. So black people were being convicted at high rates simply to feed this machine of needing cheap labor. Um, So once again, it was very unfair and difficult for blacks in the South to gain upward mobility. And so while... I've been sharing elements of kind of what happened post slavery. Something that must be mentioned is not only were uh, these convictions often unfounded, other crimes were occurring towards black people. It's like everything in the environment was saying, You're other, you don't belong here, you don't have the same worth, value, rights. And if you think about it, hundreds of years of being in slavery. There's no, what like, Americans had no other sense of what the economy looked like, if not on the backs of black slave labor. So in addition to the unfair treatment legally, Dr. DeGrasse shares several examples of terror, uh, terrorism, crimes, um, beatings, hangings, um, Etc. And there was a couple that really kind of kicked me in the stomach almost as I read them. So I'm just going to share two examples to kind of give you some of that context. So basically, there were times when black people would be burned to death. Here's a quote This had been done in Texarkana and Paris, Texas, in Bardswell kentucky and in newman georgia in paris the officers of the law delivered the prisoner to the mob the mayor gave the school children a holiday and railroads ran excursion trains so that people might see a human being burned to death in texarkana the year before men and boys amused themselves by cutting off strips of flesh and thrusting knives into their helpless victim. At Newman, Georgia of the present year, the mob tried every conceivable torture to compel the victim to cry out and confess before they set fire to the faggots that burned him. And faggots here is referring to sticks. But their trouble was all in vain. He never uttered a cry. And they could not make him confess. And so Dr. DeGray goes on to share that while black men made up the majority of those lynched, black women did not escape this form of execution. In 1918, a pregnant black woman named Mary Turner was hanged, covered with oil and gasoline, and burned. As she dangled from the rope, a man stepped forward with a pocket knife and ripped open her abdomen in a crude cesarean operation out tumbled the prematurely born child two feeble cries it gave and received for answer the heel of a stalwart man as life was ground out of its tiny form i don't have commentary on that it's gruesome another prominent thing that dr DeGry shared about the uh, the terrorism going on at the time there were some examples of black men who simply would possibly startle a white woman and they would be accused of sexual assault so here's an example one morning during rush hour people claimed they heard sarah page a white elevator operator scream and then saw dick Rowland, a black shoe shiner running from the elevator as a result roland was arrested and jailed for assaulting a white woman the next day an article and editorial in the local newspaper called for roland to be lynched that night a white mob went to the courthouse to get roland and a group of black men marched in from greenwood to protect him a confrontation between the groups ensued shots were fired and the riot began as the black men retreated to their community white police officials deputized many of the mob and gave them instructions to, in effect, go out and kill you some damn niggers. Perhaps as many as 10,000 whites stormed Greenwood. When it was all over, Greenwood had been razed to the ground and hundreds were dead. Ironically, Sarah Page refused to press charges against the accused and Dick Rowland was acquitted end quote so and we're seeing that there's no uh justice or uh due process because this all occurred within 24 hours so because the running man basically startled the elevator operator he was arrested for assault with no one like she never even pressed charges against him but it was just it went from accusation to conviction that quickly and then when it was all said and done he was acquitted but Greenwood is a part of Tulsa Oklahoma uh, also known as Black Wall Street and so this was a thriving part of the the town where it, there was this black wealth and upward mobility happening so as a result of this small accusation, all of Greenwood was burnt to the ground by the mob of 10,000 whites. And I've heard about Black Black Wall Street and how it was destroyed, but I never really knew that it was triggered by a petty accusation or assumption. And I I never knew the context of the overreacting that kind of occurred. And so that was, that was enlightening to me. Um, And so there's a couple of other things um, that are kind of covered to show, you know, unequal opportunities and things like that. So um, obviously ongoing trauma for these black people, um, thus, you know, feeding into the post-traumatic slave syndrome, being passed down from generation to generation. You know, there was the Tuskegee study where basically black men were being experimented upon um, and not being told. If they were receiving treatment for syphilis or not. And the outcome, it was really just to see how long it would take a person to deteriorate. And then you have, you know, things related to affirmative action with regards to the education system, uh, attempts to get equality in the workplace, which is still disproportionately unequal. So here's one statistic shared quote, Unemployment among African Americans is twice that of whites. Blacks earn approximately 75% of their white counterparts. Whether you finish graduate school or have yet to complete high school, this remains fairly consistent, regardless of the level of education, end quote. And then it goes on, uh, she goes on to talk about the unequal uh, representation in prisons. Uh, And I wish I could show you this uh, chart that uh, is shown in this chapter. Uh, But basically it breaks down by white women, black women, Latino women, white men, black men, and Latino men. And the highest bar by far is that of black men. So here's a quote. There are approximately 2.2 million men, women, and youth incarcerated in America. The United States leads the world in the number of people that it incarcerates with a 500% increase over the last 40 years. What caused the drastic increase in rates of incarceration? The increase is a reflection of the changes in sentencing and, surprisingly, not in the rate of crimes committed. Drug offenses and the implementation of harsh mandatory sentencing laws explain a large proportion of the increase. African Americans and people of color are disproportionately represented in incarceration due to drug offenses. And while blacks make up 13% of the population, they account for nearly 30 per, 36% of state and federal prisoners these stark racial disparities cannot be explained by rates of drug crime. Studies shows that people of all colors use and sell illegal drugs at remarkably similar rates. So it's, it can't be explained away by the myth that somehow black people abuse drugs more often, because statistically speaking, it's across the board. Uh, doesn't matter what background, and it really doesn't matter socioeconomic status either. And this this chapter in the book really goes really in-depth about all of these systemic things that continue to impact black folks uh, to this day. And so one of the examples was how, uh, I'll just share the quote, uh, today prisoners make jeans, sweatshirts, toys, and circuit boards. They make car parts, pack golf balls, do telemarketing, and even take airline reservations, all for major corporations as well as the federal government. For their labor, inmates typically receive as little as 30 to 95 cents an hour. Not only do these companies get labor for well below minimum wage, they get it without having to pay for unemployment insurance, health care, vacations, or pensions, end quote. Um, something that came to mind as I read that, recently, my uh, license plates on my car were up for renewal. And so it, you know, when they send you the thing in the mail, it it suggests, you know, do you want to get like a, a specialty license plate? Or do you want to put like special characters on it? So I decided to get one that contributes like a portion of it to local animal shelters. Um, Interestingly enough, when it came in the mail, I get the little emails uh, that tell me what's coming in the mail for the day. And it had this like cryptic kind of name of where it was coming from. And so I typed it into Google. And it was actually the name of the federal prison in Powhatan in a suburb of Richmond, Virginia. So I mean, I knew that prisons stamp license plates, but I didn't realize that. And and part of the name of the the place where it was coming from, it it said something enterprises. So it's like a for-profit thing. It's not like, uh, and we don't really think about these things um, that much or, you know, where the labor comes from. But yeah, that one kind of struck me. And lastly, I want to share just a list of comparisons Because obviously, I've talked on the podcast about police using deadly force. And so, the way that Dr. DeGry painted this in this book, I thought was very profound. What I'm about to share is basically a side by side comparison of how the law treats white people versus black people. Let's start with unarmed black men who were shot and killed. In 2014, we had Eric Garner, um, who was an unarmed 43-year-old African-American man who was choked to death by police after saying, I can't breathe 11 times. Um, In 2012, we had uh, Trayvon Martin, who was murdered by George Zimmerman, despite being told by the police not to pursue him in 2014 we had the death of michael brown who was an unarmed um and also trayvon martin was unarmed as well Um, but going to michael brown he was an unarmed 18 year old african-american male that was fatally shot to death by the police also in 2014 tamir rice who was an unarmed 12-year-old African-American child, was fatally shot by police. 2015, Walter Scott, unarmed 50-year-old African-American man, was shot in the back eight times by police while running away from the officer. Again, excessive deadly force. If he's running from you, he's not hurting you. Why do we need to shoot him eight times? But I digress. Also in 2015, Freddie Gray, an unarmed 25-year-old African American, died of spinal injuries while in police custody. And the list continues to go on and on. I mean, even in 2020 and 2021, there are several names that come to mind. And so that's a list of black men who were shot and killed by police who were unarmed. So let's take a look at some examples of armed white males arrested without incident. In 1995, Timothy McVeigh, an armed 27-year-old white male, bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people. He was arrested unharmed. And just as I read through these, keep in mind all of the black lives that were just mentioned Of folks who were unarmed who were gunned down so in 2011 we have jared lee lochner a 23 year old white male armed with a semi-automatic gun shot and wounded arizona congressman gabrielle giffords and killed six people he was arrested unharmed 2012, James Egan Holmes, a 25-year-old white male armed with a semi-automatic rifle, attacked a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, killing 12 people, injuring 70, was arrested unharmed. Uh, 2015, we have Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old white male carrying a semi-automatic pistol, attended a prayer service in South Carolina, killing nine people, and was arrested unharmed and here's the kicker he was taken to burger king on the way to the police station so not only was he arrested unharmed after killing nine people the police were courteous enough to stop at burger king to get him a meal on the way i'll let you reflect on that one Uh, and then in 2016 we have jason brian dalton a 45 year old white male in kalamazoo michigan who randomly shot nine people with a semi automatic handgun, killing six people, and once again was arrested unharmed. So, those are several examples over time of both deadly force used on unarmed black men who are shot and killed, but then when we look at how historically the police treat armed white males. They seem to not die, even though they're holding semi-automatic weapons. That juxtaposition and how Dr. DeGry set that up really, really affected me. It really angered me, mainly because we already know the disproportionate treatment of black people due to law enforcement. So the conclusion of chapter three of this book... <sighs> I'm just going to end it with a quote. And I thank y'all for sticking with me because this is, like I said, very heavy material, which is why I'm breaking it up over a few parts here. Here's the quote 180 years of the Middle Passage and well over 300 years of slavery, rape, and abuse, followed by an illusory freedom, black codes, convict leasing and Jim Crow, all codified by our national institutions. Lynching, medical experimentation, redlining, disenfranchisement, grossly unequal treatment in almost every aspect of our society, brutality at the hands of those charged with protecting and serving, end quote. That statement summarizes the entire chapter of stuff that I just shared and so what I'm noticing right now is that this book is really breaking down some of the the history of how this all came to be and why we're seeing what we're seeing today and you can also see like how The institutions that we have today didn't just happen all of a sudden, that it was designed. It was designed this way. So, just like I did on the first episode, I don't really have a neat conclusion, but I do appreciate you following me along. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast, and best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast, no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.